Good catch. Greetings, everybody. Greetings to uh, our brethren here. Greetings to those who are online, those who are missing from here, and of course, uh, Brother Adrian and Sister Jennifer who are joining us from their place in BC where they are, are spending the weekend. Brother Jan, in his opening, mentioned that it was the 16th day of the 13th month. What does that mean to you when you hear that? 16th day of the 13th month. He sort of clued you in. As I was headed to work on yet early yesterday morning, the full moon was bright in the sky. It was the end of the full moon. It was just turning from a perfectly circular moon to just, just a little oblong. And that immediately reminded me that Passover is less than a month away. On April 18th, after sunset, Thursday, April 18th, after sunset, we will gather together. For those of you who are scattered, you may be gathering in your homes to take the Passover. Let's, as we begin, let's go back to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. Just by way of introduction, and look at a couple of items here. We've locally here in our congregation, we went through quite a bit of discussion on the Holy Days a couple of weeks ago. You'll recall in the, in the family fellowship, we had a discussion about the Holy Days. So some of this is review. But again, as we begin the process of, of, of getting our minds set on the Passover, it's important that we take time to review the basics. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which ye shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So this year, on Saturday, April 6th, which is in two weeks from today, beginning with the, the sunset setting of the sun on Friday evening, April 5th, this will be the start of the new biblical year. So Passover begins 13 days later, on the 14th. So therefore, according to what God prescribes here for us in Leviticus 23, we come to after sunset on Thursday, April 18th. But notice, and we've covered this before, but again by way of review, this Hebrew word for feasts is moed. Keep that in mind as we go back to Exodus 12. Exodus 12, we see... And I'm taking us there for you to just to point this out and then invite you to, in your preparation for Passover this year, which I'm sure you're doing, but invite you to review this as part of the Passover experience. And here in chapter 12 is where the, the Passover and the, the requirements for the children of Israel as they are about to embark on their exodus from Egypt is laid plain for them and the items that they need to do, beginning as we see in verse 3 on the 10th of the month where they select the lamb and then proceeding down through the rest of the, the account of chapter 12 where it is made plain for them what they need to do. This was their experience. This was how they were to keep the Passover and as they looked back on their, their journey in the wilderness for 40 years, this would be 
what they would look back to as their path, their first Passover experience. And this chapter is replete with the requirements that they needed to, to follow through. But we know, we know that this was not the first time that the 14th day of the first month was considered holy time. Let's go back to Exodus 5. Before, long before the Passover, here, in Exodus 5, and again, this is by way of review, and of course, keeping in mind the audience that we, we have joining us either now or, or later when it's recorded. Exodus 5, verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. The same word, Moed. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. Something had been part of their belief system while they were still in slavery in Egypt. They weren't asking out at this point. They were asking for time off, much like we ask for time off to keep God's holy days. That's what they were doing. Give us a few days so we can go out into the wilderness and keep a feast to the Lord. Long before God ever instituted the requirements for, for the Passover as they would come to know them, they knew they needed to go and sacrifice to God on his holy time. So how did a man trained as an Egyptian prince, come to know God's law. Let's go back to Exodus 2. Exodus 2. We know the story of the what uh, Egypt was doing, where they were having the, the boys under two sacrificed and killed, and how Moses' mom arranged for his protection. And we picked up, for time's sake, we'll pick it up in verse 8. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went ahead and called the child's mother. So Moses' mother was being given an opportunity to work on behalf of the, the, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. So the first number of years in Moses' life till he became weaned, he was under the guidance of his actual Hebrew mother, which was a, something here that is, is a, a detail that we can't overlook. Continuing in verse 11, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. How did he know he was a Hebrew? Because his mom had raised him. God had, while he was going to being prepared to be an Egyptian prince, to help eventually take God's people out of Egypt, he actually had an opportunity to be raised by his Hebrew mother and knew he was a Hebrew. We're, and we're, we're tracking backwards here to see that Moses knew he was a Hebrew. And then when we look forward, we see that here. Moses, Moses knew who he was because in chapter 3, when God introduced himself to Moses, he said in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. He knew who he was, and he knew who the God of the Hebrews was. 
And when God introduced himself that way to him, he knew and immediately was in a, a state of reverence. Let's go back to Genesis 1, and we'll just close the loop here in the, as we introduce this topic. And looking at the, the experience of Moses and the children of Israel, and seeing that holy time was holy time long before God set the requirements of the Passover in Exodus 12. And we see here in verse 14 of the creation account, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And what we see here, when you dig into the, the Hebrews, we know, as, as you've probably studied, this word for moon, for sorry, for seasons, is moed. The word for seasons is moed. The same word that is used in the future in Leviticus 23 for feasts. And that's critical and important because we see that holy time was part of creation. That the sun was created so we understood when the weekly Sabbath was. And the moon was created so that we knew when the annual moed, or the annual appointments with God were. So we see this holy time extending all the way back to the creation account. And when we were in Exodus... These were the experiences, and we, as, you, as you take time to read the whole account, which I hope you do in the lead-up to Passover, these were the experiences of Moses and the first generation of the children of Israelites. There are other experiences and instructions sprinkled throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, as we know. But in 27 days, on Thursday evening, the 18th of April, all of us who are part of the covenant body of Jesus Christ have an appointment with our creator, have an appointed time that has been set from creation, that as committed members of the body of Christ, we have an appointment with God on that evening. And on, on that evening, we will kick off this biblical year set of annual festivals with the Passover. So what I'd like to do today is review our Passover experience. Review our Passover experience as members of the covenant body of Jesus Christ, and of course, for those who are not yet committed, but do attend with us, or plan to make that commitment. And you know that in, in our fellowship, we, if you're a regular attendee, part of the family, you're welcome to attend the Passover experience with us, Passover service with us. Our experience that each year is different, because it's, it's different from what we read in Exodus 12, because it's based on new symbols, which we know. But what I'd like to do for the rest of today is to walk through that experience as we prepare to commemorate the Passover this year. Let's begin in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. We know that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we have been baptized into, having received his blood for the remission of our sins, and we'll cover that in a little bit as well, we know that that drove a change in the symbology of what we use to commemorate the Passover. Let's pick it up here in Matthew 26, verse 17, as we look at our Passover experience through the lens of the scriptures. So Matthew 26, verse 17, 
Now on the first of unleavened bread, we notice the day of the feast is, in, is italicized, so it wasn't in the original, original manuscript, and we don't have time to dive into that today. But now first of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said to him, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So they were getting together to eat the Passover, and they were going to do it at this, at this house. Let's skip for, the, for right now, let's skip down to verse 26. And as you do, again, they were coming together to eat a meal. And remember, they were still operating in conjunction with the Exodus experience. Dropping down to verse 26, and as they were eating, as they were eating, what I'd like to ask you to do today is to pay attention to detail. Pay attention to the details that we see. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave to them. Again, we'll eliminate the italicized word, so we stick as close as we can to the original, and gave to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what we immediately see here is something new was being instituted, and it was a must. The newness here, the bread and the wine, was a must. And the reason why we know it was a must is that the verbs take and eat, back in verse 26, and the verb drink in verse 27, are all written in the imperative. And as you will recall from time to time when we dig into the Greek, and specifically with the verbs, there are various tenses that, that the writers of Greek use to help add some color to exactly what was being said or written by the speaker or the writer. And here it's important that we take note that these directives were imperatives, that Christ was saying to his body, take and eat. I'm not asking, I'm not suggesting, I'm saying this is my body, you take and you eat. This is wine representing my blood, you take and you drink. This was a command to members of the covenant. So that's an important detail to note. We also see back in verse 28 that he connects this to the remission of sins, that his blood would be shed for the remission of sins. And for those of you who are following along on the, on the Isaiah Bible studies, you'll recall we see this mentioned back in chapter 43 and verse 25. Let's, uh, I won't take, we won't take time to go back there now, but I do invite you to, to log on to uh, the uh, CGI website and look into the archives if you haven't, and check out the Isaiah Bible studies, because we see much of what is, is prescribed in the law filtered through Isaiah and then described for us and, and referred back to time and again throughout the New Testament, which is an important connection that we need to make. And I'll let the Bible studies speak for themselves. But again, for the remission of sins. When you choose to repent, obey, and that's key, obey, choose to repent, obey, and follow God, 
we see here what Christ is referring back to when you go back into Isaiah. What is being told to God's people is that if you repent, obey, and follow God, your sins can be forgiven. And we talked a, a time or two ago, I spoke on the topic of remez. And you'll recall that these sort of hints here that we, that we have here in the New Testament drive us back into the law and the prophets where God's people who are familiar with the scriptures knew where to go. And that's another good example of that there. But the important thing to note here is the, the imperativeness for God's people in the changing of the symbols that on this night we were to eat this bread that was blessed and drink this wine is what we see here. Let's go to Mark 14. We'll keep moving along here. Mark 14. And notice the second gospel account. In fact, this I believe where this was written first. The Gospel of Mark chronologically was written first. Mark 14, verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, so this is, again, we won't get, we won't get, we won't get sidetracked into those details, but this is referring to the day that they killed the Passover, and Mark is specific there. His disciples said to him, where do you want to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? So again, there's a, there's a meal of some kind they're talking about here. And just keep that in mind as we look at these details as they keep the Passover. Dropping down to verse 17, for time's sake, in the evening, he came with the 12. And as they sat and ate, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me, Will betray, will betray me. So as a group, they're sitting around and they're having this meal. And then verse 22. As they were eating, as they were sitting around eating this meal, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave to them saying, take, eat, this is my body. Exactly what we read back in Matthew, but this is account number two. As they were eating, he took bread, Broke, blessed and broke it and gave it to them to eat, representing his body. Then, verse 23 tells us, then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So the same details, same fine point details I'm asking you to look at, we see here mentioned in Scripture. Mark backs that up. Let's now go to Luke 22. Again, just for confirmation. The third synoptic gospel. Luke 22. And you can see, for time's sake, we won't go back yet and look here, but we, we see that the same meal is happening. The same gathering for this meal. Verse 19. He took bread gave thanks and broke it, and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. So there's a couple of details missing there. As they were eating is missing. But be that as it may, those, those couple of minor details are missing from Luke, but we see them in Matthew and Mark's account. Now let's go to the other account, that talks about the, uh, there's, there's two more, one in John, but let's not go there yet. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
And we're going to spend most of our time in these five accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John's account in chapter 13, which we'll get to in a little bit. And then here in 1 Corinthians 11, which walks us through much of that evening as well. And we see here that Paul, who wasn't there, but was taught by Christ. We see that in, we read that in Galatians. He was taught by Christ himself, confirms that we are to continue to follow Christ's instructions and do so on the very same night. That's an important detail to look at. Let's read in verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the, on the night in which we see that we, the same is there, it really doesn't take away or detract or, or change the meaning, but it wasn't there in the original, on the night, in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner also, the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So again, four examples of the changes in the symbols that in Christ's words are an imperative to the body of Christ that rather than follow the, the instructions in Exodus 12 or in other areas of, 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 the, of the Hebrew scriptures, we are now to take this bread that has been blessed and eat it representing his blood. And we do this on an annual basis and we take the, the wine representing his blood, sorry, the bread representing his body, the wine representing his blood, and do this in remembrance of him, his sacrifice, our commitment to that sacrifice, and a reminder that our sins are forgiven when we follow, when we repent, obey, and follow God. That's part of the Passover service. For those of you who have attended a Passover service in a Church of God congregation, you'll note that we are missing a key element that only John covers, and that is the washing of each other's feet. So let's take a a few minutes to look at this strange custom. Some would call it strange. So why do we do this? Why do we wash each other's feet? Let's first go to John chapter 20. Those who are here locally know why we're going to John 20. We're in the middle of a, a study of the gospel of John. But for the purposes of those who are, are tuning in, whenever you go and study the Gospel of John, it's important that you keep these two verses in mind. Because God or John specifies why he wrote a fourth account. We've just covered the, th- the three accounts, the three synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they were quite detailed. And it seems rather, from the outset, not knowing, what, not knowing the reason, it would seem rather overdone for John to take time to write a fourth one. But we know that John's gospel was written from a completely different perspective and for completely different reasons. And here locally, we know we're we're going through this this study here. But let's go to verse 30, John 20, where John defines his reasons for writing this. And this is the, the lens that we need to look at, look through whenever we are studying the gospel of John. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Remember, this, the book was really revolving around the seven signs. But these are written 
verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that believing in this fact, these two facts, that he's the Christ and the Son of God, you may have life in his name. So whatever is in John is seen through these lenses. So understanding that, let's go back to John 13. And as you do, I'll also remind you that John wrote his gospel many, many decades later. After all who were in the room, this, the account that we're reading here today, the, the 12 that were in the room, after all of the, who were in the room that evening were long gone. John is the last of, the, of those who were in the room to still be present on the earth when he wrote this. He lived through much of the persecution that was going on, as we know, that we see, we see written about in the book of Acts and then f- and further on referred to in the epistles, both by the Romans and the Jews. So th- this is the lens that John, getting inside John's head and why he wrote this. He's looking back after many decades. Everybody else is gone. Everybody else is dead. He's the last living witness who was in the room. And the church is going through much persecution. And we see, when we read some of these, these epistles that he and the other writers wrote, we can see the dysfunction that is developing in the church. And an obvious concern about unity in the body. So, as he is filling in some gaps and writing his perspective of Christ's life, he throws in something that the other three don't, and that is the washing of the feet. Which, again, must fulfill either showing either showing that he is Christ, the Messiah, or that believing in that fact give us, gives us life in his name. Verse 2. Let's go to John 13, verse 2. Might as well start on verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, and having loved them to the end, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, why are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And again, we're just, I'm just going to read for purposes right now, we're just going to read through the account and then we'll make some comments. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If I know these things, sorry, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
I do not speak according to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And we'll stop there. I wanted to stop at verse 17. Specifically referring to the, the explanation of and the description of this act of washing of the feet. So verse 2, some comments as we, as we read this account. Verse 2 is interesting. And supper being ended. This is a detail that is, that is, that is interesting here. That the washing of the feet, this whole, this whole description here, took place after supper had ended. I offer you to reconsider what we read before with the taking of the bread and the wine as supper was going on. So just an interesting detail for you to consider on the timing. Tradition had the washing of feet taking place as guests were arriving at someone's home. We, we know that in the, the time there, there were dirt roads, and, uh, and most often, I'm assuming all the time, open-toed footwear is, is typically what was worn. And this was a way of welcoming, welcoming a guest into your home to provide a, a washing of the feet. And if you've ever had your feet washed, it's, it's a, quite refreshing, actually. And it was a task, though, that was performed by servants, which was we'll get into a little bit here, which is why Christ used this as a lesson. It doesn't seem to me, as I read this account, that this was done this time in the spirit of welcoming. Supper had already ended. It doesn't seem to me at this point, to me, as I read, that this was done in a spirit of welcoming. What I would suggest is that he was dealing with a competitive spirit that was being made manifest in the words of the disciples as they were talking to each other. On this most important night of his physical life, this was the most important night of his physical life, all of his years here. What we see back in Luke 22, I'll invite you to go back to Luke 22 with me, is that on this most important night, and we obviously have the advantage of looking back at this, they were going through it. We see some dissension in the ranks. Verse 24 of Luke 22. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he was greatest among you. Let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. For he who is greater, he who sits at the table, for who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's trying to get them to be kingdom focused, to be, to be forward thinking. And they were, they were wondering who was going to have the greater seat. And he was, he was flabbergasted. He, it was like a full, a full stop. Whoa, 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 guys. We need to stay focused. I'm showing you the keys to the kingdom, and you're worried about who gets the better seat. The, the kingdom of God, and he goes on in, in if you go to the, the, the account in John, he'll go on in chapter 14 through 17 to build upon this before he, sit, before he bids them farewell. But, the, but what he wanted them to see 
And what we see looking back is that the kingdom of God was going to take another step toward reality this night, this most important night in his entire physical life. And he was telling them, you have an opportunity for a front row seat to judge the 12 tribes of Israel in the kingdom of God. You have an opportunity for a front row seat. Among all that have ever, ever lived, you get a front row seat. An opportunity to sit in 12 very special seats. Do you really care which of those 12 seats you get to sit in? The fact that you are in the front row and you're in 12 special seats, do you care which one you get? Doesn't matter. That was what he was trying to say. And as John contemplates his departure decades later and his need to being led by God to write a last witness account, was there anything missing that the other fellows missed that just didn't sit with them? For whatever reason, they didn't write this down. That's right. That lesson in humility we got about washing each other's feet. Let's go back to John 13. Because we read this, these two verses, they're almost as well known as John 3.16, these two verses. But we can't forget that they are connected to the Passover service. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. And by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Not who gets the better seat of these 12. I want to be. I want to sit on the left side, or I want to sit in the middle. or, or they, they got, They're in one of the 12 seats to serve. And it was this new commandment to love one another that was part and parcel of this lesson of the foot washing. So why did the others miss it? Speculating, for sure. We don't know why the others didn't write it down. It seems they were focused on specifying the changes in the symbols of the bread and the wine, along with some of the other frightening details of his crucifixion. But they didn't write this down. But John did. Looking back years later, decades later, it was important for him to to note for us this was an important part of the Passover service. But it is interesting. Let's go to verse 14. Verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I point you back to Matthew when we read, Take, eat, and drink. And you'll recall that we said these verb tenses were in the imperative. This, in verse 15, you should do. This verb tense is subjunctive, and there's a difference. And it's an important difference. It's not the imperative. And again, we talked earlier about the written Greek and the many different tenses used to describe the, the intent of the speaker or the writer. And the changes in the symbols of the bread and wine, these were a must. The symbols were going from a lamb and the blood on the doorposts to bread and wine. And if you are part of the covenant people and you are to take this Passover and commemorate it on an annual basis, you must do it now with bread and with wine. You no longer need to kill a lamb from here on in. That was what Christ was saying. 
The Lamb of God has been killed for the remission of our sins. This is a must for covenant people. But the foot washing, it's actually not an imperative. It was a suggestion. He said, you should do this. Now, that's not to diminish the benefit from it, because when your Savior and your Lord and Master says, you should do this, I think we should do this. But it separates it from the imperativeness of the symbols of the bread and the wine, which are the, the how we take the new covenant, or how we take the Passover. I retract that, the new covenant Passover. How we take the Passover now that we are members of the body of Christ. So our Lord says we should do it. John included it to help us understand how to attain, how to attain eternal life in his name. It has to be one of the reasons he included it, because he said, everything I wrote, I did for these three reasons. And it's hard to say whether the, the earlier groups, the groups between Christ's crucifixion and the time that John wrote this down, was everybody washing feet? It's hard to say. The other three gospel accounts don't record that. So it would be foolish enough to make that argument either way. But John wrote it down here, and he said, Christ said we should do it. So we incorporate that into our keeping of the Passover. And we allow, because it's not part and parcel of the commanded symbols of the Passover, the red and the wine, we allow other non-baptized members of the congregation who in their journey towards discipleship, we allow them to participate in this part too, should they want to. Because it's good for everybody to learn, on, especially if you're on your way to being part of the covenant, to giving your life to Christ, to learn how to love one another as Christ loved us. 1 Corinthians 11. Let's go there. And because our Lord said we ought to and we should, we obey. The other thing that washing our feet does on this, on this evening is it helps us discern the Lord's body. And we see that referred to here in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drink, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And discerning the Lord's body is really all about developing a full appreciation of what it means to be part of the family of God, how to dwell together, serving God and serving each other through our gifts in the spirit of sacrificial love, this, ter this term we know as agape. And it provides the basis for our behavior in the body. And we're going to get to that a little bit in part three, the third part of today's sermon. We don't have time to dig into this discerning the Lord's body, but I don't need to. What I do is I would like to refer you back to a sermon that Pastor Adrian gave on the subject called discerning the Lord's body. If you haven't seen it or you haven't heard it, you can go on to the CGI website, www.cgi.org, and type in in the search discerning the Lord's body. It will pop up. He actually gave it in Tyler, so there's a video presentation of it in addition to the one that he gave here locally. But foot washing and, and understanding 
what this, this the impact. And if you've never, if you've never had your foot, feet washed or washed someone else's feet, it is a, it is a, an experience all to itself. There's a third aspect to the evening that is often overlooked, but is part of all five accounts that we have read. We've been in Matthew, we've been in Mark, we've been in Luke, we've been in John, and we've been in 1 Corinthians. And there's a third aspect, and it is in all five accounts. And that is the meal that was being eaten beforehand. So let's go back and have a look. We're going to spend the rest of the sermon time looking at the Passover evening and focusing on the meal. And what I'd like to ask you to do is to compare it to your current Passover experience. And I would be interested in your feedback. Mark 14, let's begin there. And again, as I mentioned before, as the, throughout the, the entirety of this message, as we're looking at the Passover experience, let's look at the details. Let's, anything that's written, don't, don't assume it's just a detail we need to overlook. Let's look at the details. And I'm just going to present them to you as I read them. Mark 14, verse 17. We've been here before, but now let's look at it in light of the meal they were eating beforehand. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now, as they sat and ate. So, again, if you have to, close your eyes. Close your eyes and hear what is being said. And put yourself in one of their shoes. As they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So they're sitting around eating. You've sat around with your family eating. This discussion develops. And Christ says, someone's going to betray me. Immediately, we would have asked the same thing. Which one, of, which one of us in the room is going to betray this guy, betray our friend? Verse 22, as they were eating, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke, and gave to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. How does this compare with your Passover experience? Food for thought. Matthew 26. Let's go back to Matthew's account. Verse 20, Matthew 26, verse 20. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He 
who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So Matthew and Mark again mirror each other's account. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So again, they're having a meal together. And as they were eating, he blessed, broke, and gave bread to them as part of the, the to, to eat, to represent his body. And then gave them wine to drink. Now, for full disclosure, and we know this, but it's important as, as things change and as, people, as, as translations change and, and, and as the, the, the ability to, to, to uh, assume we know what we're talking about, we need to go back. I'd like to go back, hold your place here, go back to Exodus 34 and point out a very important point, but if we don't continue to point it out generation after generation, some will try and convince you that it's okay to eat leavened bread. It is not. It is not. Exodus 34. Verse 25. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with lemon, with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. So again, yes, the symbols have changed. Rather than, than lamb, we eat bread. Rather than sprinkling of the, the blood on the doorpost, we drink wine. But whatever bread we eat, that hasn't changed. And it was never, ever, ever to be with leaven. It must be unleavened bread. Let's go back to, so we've read Mark's account, we've read Matthew's account. Let's go to Luke 22. And again, watch for detail. Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And remember, we're talking about the meal here. Quite often, as you know, the word Passover is interchanged for many, many uses. Here we're talking about the meal, which includes the bread and the wine. Then he took the cup and gave thanks. We've read this before, We've read the, we, but there's some details here. And said, take this and divide amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That's an interesting detail. Verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise also the cup after supper, 
saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Take the cup and divide it amongst yourselves. That's an interesting detail. Let's go now to John 13. As we read the scriptures for what they are and get a full concept of the Passover experience. We read this before, but again, we're talking about the meal here. And recall what we talked about before. John didn't feel the need to cover what Matthew, Mark, and Luke covered. So he's, he doesn't cover that because there's no need. Two witnesses are enough. Three is as good as it, as good as it, as good as it ever needs to be. So John doesn't waste our time or his by covering some of these details that have already been covered three times. So he skips part of this but he gets to the part of the foot washing, which we talked about those reasons why. Verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Then they proceeded, after supper was over, to proceed into the foot washing. And again, we've covered all of that. Let's go down to verse 26. Verse 23. Now there leaning on Jesus' bosom was one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. There was still bread on the table. There was still bread on the table. Enough bread that he could dip it in whatever they used to dip it in. After the symbols. After the foot washing. And because they were still sitting around, and we see what happens, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, he was there, this was his last hours with them. And after this, he went into a long diatribe about some things he had to cover. And then he prayed with them blessing them before God, before he would then be taken away. Interesting details. 1 Corinthians 11. Back to that account. As we look at the meal. And again, Really, really important as we discover, and we've discovered this, that we pay attention to translations. Because what you have in front of you may not may have some wording changed once in a while. And it's really important to, to be wary of that. And here's another good example. In the same manner, I'm going to read from the New King James Version. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I thought it was as they were eating. So somewhere I see as they were eating. Here I see after supper. Details, but for me, I see a detail. I go, okay, hang on. I need to figure this out. Because it looks one way here, and then it looks the other way here. I have complete and total faith that the word of God would not contradict itself. 100%. So therefore, 
Where's what happened? That's where I need to go. So I'm offering this up as an explanation and for you to consider. In the King James, if you have the King James, it doesn't say after supper. It actually says, when he had supped, when he had supped. And does this contradict the gospel account? Again, let's go back to dissecting some of the Greek. And again, I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, but the more and more these questions come up, quite often the answers come when you dive into the Greek and, 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 and parse the Greek a little bit. This word had supped is in the aorist tense. Again, I'm not a Greek scholar, so if I so I'm explaining this in like basic level that I understand it, because that's all that's all I understand this from having done a little bit of study. The aorist tense does not accurately and fully translate into an English equivalent. I, I'm, I'm, I have studied. So the translators added after to it in some versions, because that sort of made it flow well. But as best as I can tell, the aorist tense, while in the past, describes a situation as an undivided whole. So this, and so let, me, let me continue and I'll go back. So the act of supping on this evening was an entire event. It was an entire event. As he, as he, and here Paul, years later, is looking back on the, on the evening. And we see here that he said, when he had supped, he took bread and broke. So the event was in the past, and it was an undivided whole. So this whole event was in the past. But taking the bread and the wine was a part of the overall act of supping. So while it seems like it was after supper, what is really being said here, I think, to make it in line with the gospel accounts, is that the whole event happened before. And it was a singular event. The, the, the entire evening was an event. Part of it was having a meal. Part of it was taking the bread. Part of it was taking the wine. Part of it was doing the foot washing. But his point here was pointing it back that it happened on the same night and in the same manner. That's what Paul was referring to. So I don't believe he's contradicting the scripture by it saying, by Matthew saying as they were eating, and then Paul here saying after they had supped. So again, Food for thought, that's, that's, that's my thought. I'm certainly open to, to discussing that. And I would be interested in your feedback. Let's go back to stay in this chapter. And let's spend some time here discussing this, this meal from Paul's perspective, as Paul is looking back, having, again, spent time with Christ and being, and being taught how to do things. Verse 17, we've, re- we've read, I believe we've already read it, uh, chapter 17, or actually, Brother Bob read it. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And dropping down to verse 33. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. And I've heard it explained that this tells us we eat at home and we come and take the bread and the wine on the Passover evening. If I pull that out, I see that. If I put it back in and then look at it as a great big, great big letter, I see something else. And I see support for this meal they were eating back in Matthew, back in Mark, back in Luke, and back in John, that Paul is supporting this meal. We see the word the Lord's Supper there in verse 20. This is the only time this phrase is used in the scriptures that I could find. If I'm wrong, somebody please point that out afterwards. And some take this as a way to differentiate between the Old Testament Passover and the New Testament Passover. But is it really talking about the Passover symbols? I don't see that here. I see this great big meal that he's talking about. And then as part of this meal, and again, understanding this Aorist tense where he talks about after he had supped, this, and it was this, this uh, let me go back to my notes here. important I, I word this right it was a um, an undivided whole so the, the the event in itself was a was was an entirety of an event of which the meal was part and the the bread and the wine was part so I'll leave that with you to consider I mean here here in our local congregation we've considered over the last number of years and we do have a meal but for those of you who are listening who have never had a meal I I leave with that for you to consider as you work through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and 1 Corinthians. But let's read on. Verse 17. And again, details. We can't miss details. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. This word now is important. This word now is the Greek word day, D-E-H, and it means moreover. And it actually has two different uses. It's obviously an... I don't remember the, the, the English equivalent, and, but, and if are, are a specific, uh, um, an interjection, I think, is what it's called in English. I could have that word wrong. But this, this word, moreover, can be either adversative, which is presenting a contrast. So you're going from one idea to another. You have this, this, this interjection word that is used to, to make the connection. It can be adversative, which means presenting a contrast, or it could be continuative, which, is mean extend, which means extending the thought. And we get the use of that based on the context. The context that I read clearly indicates it is continuative. Moreover, in giving these instructions, which instructions? Chapter 1 through chapter 11, verse 16. This whole, this whole letter has been leading up to this. Now, I've said all of these things, and in giving these instructions, I can't praise you. It's important that we stop there and have a look. I submit to you, he's talking about everything he has written in this letter. You are a dysfunctional congregation, he tells them. You are, and go back, go back to the beginning. You don't need to now, but go back to the beginning. You are divided into groups based on church personalities. You allow sexual perversion in the congregation. You allow the courts of this world to settle your disputes. You have obviously unhealthy marriages and obviously unhealthy families. 
Moreover, in giving these instructions on how to fix all of this, I can't praise you right now. Because you're, you can, and now he's leading into the Lord's Supper. And then he, in verse 18 and 19, he talks about divisions. Verse 18. For first of all, when you come together, here's why he can't praise them. They're so dysfunctional. When you come together as a church, as a church, that, that body of individuals that comes together and acts as a cohesive unit, I hear that there are divisions among you. That's contradictory in and of itself. You can't have, you can't have divisions in a congregation and it be a biblical congregation. And in part, I believe it. So this word divisions is splits or schisms. That's easy, that's easily enough understood. But the why, verse 19 explains the why. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And this word factions in the King James, it's heresies. The new King James, it's, it's factions. And these are really divisions or cliques set up because they follow specific individuals. So they're divisions within the body because, and those groups aren't following individual, aren't following Christ. They're following individuals. And that goes all the way back to chapter one and the earlier chapter one and chapter three that talks about I'm following Apollos or I follow Paul. So he's, now coming back to this dysfunction that's in the congregation as they're coming together to keep the Passover. And this is, this is all made manifest. And we, again, we've covered it here. And for those of you who's been joining us since the beginning of January, that doctrine drives behavior. So we see their belief system has divided them within the group. And now it drives behavior. And we see that in verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. This doesn't say you shouldn't be having a meal. This is going, let's go back, hold your place there. Let's go back to Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1. And in verse 12, as God through Isaiah is documenting his disgust with his people Judah. Verse 12, breaking in here, Isaiah chapter 1. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? To trample my courts? When you come before me to worship, what are you doing? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me, and I am weary of bearing them. Does that say stop keeping the feast? Does that say the feasts are wrong? Of course not. It says you're keeping them the wrong way. Your heart is in the wrong place. Therefore, I don't accept your worship. And we've talked before about being in the presence of God and having him accept us in worship. Back to 1 Corinthians. That's what he is saying. We've covered all the dysfunction over the first part of the letter he is telling them. And all of this dysfunction and this division is leading to where you're mistreating each other. And that's the key. You can't keep the Passover. You can't take this meal together and be divided. You, it, this, is, this is such an important kickoff to the entire festival season that you're not eating the Lord's Supper. You're not gathering together for the Passover. You're coming to fill your faces. You're coming to get drunk. And we see that continue here. And that's, and that's, that's what he's saying here. The entire letter is written to proper keeping of the Passover and unleavened bread. The entire letter and we see that back in chapter 5. Let's go back to chapter 5. Time and again through this letter, we see indications of the Passover 
and Feast of Unleavened Bread being thrown in here because they were dysfunctional and immature and not ready. He just doesn't interject verses 6 through 8 of chapter 5 haphazardly. Oh yeah, and by the way, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. No, the whole letter was point was trying to get them geared up for and ready for Passover because they were so dysfunctional. Your glorying is not good, verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That fits in, because the whole letter is pointing them towards becoming mature mature and being ready for the Passover. Chapter chapter, uh, 10. We sometimes look at chapter 11, all of a sudden he throws something in about the Passover. No, this, it's all leading up to the centerpiece here, which is saying this is what you need to be so you can keep the Passover in a worthy manner. Chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? They are coming together to keep the Passover, and they're not ready. They aren't ready. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't have it both ways. You can't spend your life serving yourself and then show up on Passover and expect to be accepted into my presence, into the presence of God, and have your worship accepted. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. And do we provoke the Lord to jealousy, and are we stronger than he? So this table where they eat supper is all part and parcel of this, of this wholeness of the, of the evening, of which the bread and the wine are part. And we see that here, drinking of the cup. Back to verse 11, chapter 11. This is such an important part of the evening. And we see, we see here how, how, how when we've read through this, how he is trying to get them to focus on their behavior and to, to get rid of the dysfunction and to fix themselves so that when they come into the presence of God on this most holy evening, they can eat together and as they're eating together, love each other and 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 that this is where some of the chapter verses 27 through 32 come in, which I pointed you to that other message that Pastor Adrian gave. We're not going to cover that here today. But then it's still about eating because we drop down to verse 33. After all this is done, Paul says, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, if this is about coming together for food, eat before you come. Because when you come to eat, it's about something totally different. It's about loving each other, it's about sharing each other. It's about honoring each other 
as we kick off the annual holy days, as we partake of the covenant with Jesus Christ, the bread and the wine, and we do so in the presence of each other, washing each other's feet and showing each other love and discerning each other and understanding our part in the body. If you're worried about filling your face, eat a little bit before you come. Because when you come, we're going to wait for each other. We're going to be patient. We're going to have a beautiful meal. And in that meal, that whatever that phrase is I, I used before, the undivided wholeness of the evening, we will partake of the bread as part of the covenant. We will partake of the wine as part of the covenant. We will share this meal together and we will wash each other's feet. This is an exciting time of year. Here locally, we precede the foot washing, the bread and the wine, with a fellowship meal. We know that here. For those, those of you who are tuning in, we've done this for a number of years now. We call it the agape meal, and this agape meal is the historical name given to the love feast meal shared by bodies, the body of believers historically. And it was done on the night that Christ ate with his disciples. And we see that expressed very clearly for us here in 1 Corinthians 11. But again, this is a very exciting time of year as we gear up in less than four weeks for the Passover. And one filled with significance and meaning. And the Passover experience, as it is outlined for us in the four gospel accounts and here by Paul in Corinthians, is, is rich with meaning. And every year it should become more important to us and more meaningful to us. As we conclude, let's go back to John 13. John 13. As Christ transitioned from the meal, from the bread and the the wine, from the foot washing, into what would then be his final time with his disciples, when he got to cover some final important points that are written for us in chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and then... He finishes the entire evening with them by praying to God, asking God's blessing upon them. We transition here in verse 31. After, when he had gone out, referring to Judas, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. Looking back on all the events, which included Judas betraying him. That was part and parcel of the events that took place on this night, on this undivided wholeness of the night that fulfilled some of the prophetic prophecy that we see written for us. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, Where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, if we keep the Passover properly, this undivided wholeness of the night, and not dysfunctional, and we we attend to all the dysfunctionalness beforehand, and we resolve all that, and we come together, We come together in a a state of love, waiting for one another. Not here to fill our stomachs, but here to share the evening with each other. By this we'll all know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. How many of you use some sort of day-timer, calendar, written or electronic to keep track of your dates? I'm sure all of us do. The 14th day of the first month has been on God's planner 
from the beginning of recorded time. From the time he set the moon in the sky. This was on his calendar. Every year on the 14th, it is holy time. You have an appointment with your creator. Hopefully, your appreciation of the nuances of Passover grows with each passing year. There's so much to appreciate about the plan of God. But it all starts with the Passover. Without the Passover, the rest of the year becomes a moot point. How do we know this? It is so important that there are provisions in place, should you be forced to miss it, to keep it 30 days later. There are no provisions for the Feast of Leavened Bread. There are no provisions for Pentecost. There are no provisions for trumpets. There are no provisions for atonement. And there are no provisions for tabernacles. In fact, if you create another feast, you're following in the footsteps of Jeroboam. But there is provision for Passover. It is that important. And you see that in Numbers chapter 9. May our Passover experience this year, here locally, and wherever it is that you will be keeping it, bring you closer to God, closer to Jesus Christ, and closer to each other.